Greetings, Team Agilam. Karibuni sana tena. We are still on the Axe series and now we are in episode 6, guys. Tuko almost, tuko almost, tuko almost. And we are today going to be looking at Axe 5. Where we see the first real internal scandal in the church. Okay? There's a scandal in the church that happens. And this is the first time we see of it. The thing is, is that if you have been following this series, one of the things that you recognize is that up until this point in Acts chapter 5, in fact, for the, for the stuff that we've been reading up until this point, one of the things that you realize about the church is that there's just such good vibes, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's good vibes. So you remember in Acts 2 where it talks about like, you know, everyone was filled with awe and at the many signs and wonders being performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. My guy, if you don't read that and just see good vibes, you know what I'm saying? Like, it just feels like, man, I wish I could hang out with these guys. You know, it just sounds like it's just so nice. No one has any needs. Right? Now, the only opposition up until this point was literally that point where Paul and, uh, no, not Paul, Peter and John um, were with the Sanhedrin because of having healed the lame beggar and speaking in the name of Jesus. So all the opposition was really outside, but internally, inside the church, good vibes only, right? And so, here we see the first internal scandal happening, and I want to read it. But let's start from Acts 4.32, then we go into Acts 5, okay? Now let's start. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Did it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband and are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out 
and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Whew. Guys, so one of the things is that up until this point, like I said, the only thing that we learn of, and if you look at the reason why it started in chapter 432, is because, uh, you know, good vibes all around, no one claimed their possessions uh, to be their own, people shared everything that they had. I mean, how amazing is that? Like, it just sounded like such a good environment, good place to be in. And the thing that's so remarkable about this is that it says that there were no needy persons among them. I mean, that is incredible to think about. I mean, up until this point, if you think about that in the, in, 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 in the day of Pentecost, we're talking about 120 people that were disciples, that were filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says that in that day, about 3,000 were added to their number on that day. And then on top of that, because of the ministry, of, of of Peter and John in um, Acts 3 where after they performed this great miracle of healing the lame beggar, about another 2,000 are added to their number. So in total, we're talking about approximately 5,000 people. And they're talking about these 5,000 people that there were no needy persons amongst them. That's amazing. That's an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. I mean, to be able to see that level of generosity happening within this community that was growing so rapidly is quite incredible. This is quite amazing to me. That all these ordinary people that who are coming from very different backgrounds had one thing in common, who had only one thing in common, which was their faith in Christ, and they were bundling together to be able to bring such generosity to help those who were in need, that there were no needy persons amongst them. That God's grace was so powerfully at work within this community of believers, that these guys who owned houses, right, sold them and property. So meaning that there were some, some ballers in the church. It doesn't say that everybody did it. It says that there were some who owned land or houses, who sold them and brought the money from the sales so that it would be distributed to those who had need. These guys literally epitomized what Jesus spoke about in regards to storing your treasure in heaven. It's amazing stuff, right? Now, the thing that we see here is that like, up until this point, like I said, there was just good vibes. Then in comes the story of Ananias, which is, to me, quite a shocker. In fact, every single time I've read this story, I've always thought to myself, because I'm like, you know, the New Testament, grace, you know, I'm like, Jesus. And it's just like, this sounds like an Old Testament story. You know what I mean? Where it's just like, <laughs> where yes, God is just kill guys. <laughs> and so it's the same thing. You look at this story and you're just like, man, like, this is like... I'm like, Lord, like, wow, like that was, that was, that's, that looks, that appears quite extreme. <laughs> like, why did you just kill these guys, you know? Um, and so what happens is this, is that this guy Ananias, you know, conspires with his wife to sell a piece of property. And, and, and they, 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 from the story, we get the impression that they, that they held back the proceeds from, from, from the sale of this land. And from when you look at this story, the, the thing that you get to understand is that they obviously had indicated or had given the impression that they were coming to give all the proceeds from the sale of this land to the church, right? Um, so the guy lies about it to Peter and he dies. <laughs> and then three hours later, his wife who doesn't even find out about, imagine after three hours, Anyway, I guess there was no like WhatsApp or anything then. Um, so she comes, asks the same question by Peter. She lies about it and she too dies. 
and my goodness this story is just remarkable but the thing is it says that i mean even for the for the believers then it was such a remarkable story uh, thing that happened that it even says that great fear seized the whole church and those who heard these events and you know the thing is just just for the sake of imagination the way that i imagine that this whole thing went down and listen this is like you know how they do in the movies where it's just like the characters in this film <laughs> it's fiction <laughs> please don't take don't this this is just my my my, my understanding based on how when Luke talks about this story, he obviously doesn't give a lot of detail, but I kind of, this is what I get from this story, okay? So work with me, all right? So work with me on this one. So I can imagine at this point in time, people are selling their possessions, there's mad hype in the church, and there are all these people who are basically going, selling their possessions, putting them at the apostles' feet, and there's all these needs that are being met within the church. And I think it's no coincidence that Luke begins to talk about this guy called Joseph, who is a Levite, and who... Um, was this person who it says he has sold it, it talks about uh, how this guy sold his property right joseph alivet from Cyprus, who the apostles called barnabas right so meaning that this guy not only was he a guy that they gave a nickname which means son of encouragement he sold a field that he owned and brought the money to the apostles' feet, right? And so this is a thing that's happening, right? This is a thing that's happening within the church guys are um, uh, uh, the people who have means because it's not everyone who is doing this it's not everyone who's giving it says that only those who with the means gave right um, that's why it says from time to time those who own land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales which you know sounds like there were some you know out of the people who came to be believers there were some some ballers in the church you know some ballers or some people who had the means to be able to to give and some people with some assets and so it talks about this guy named Joseph who is named Barnabas and you know i think it's the, the thing to to note about this Joseph from Barnabas is that you know he's 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 um it says he's a Levite from, from Cyprus. And, and, and Cyprus in ancient times was a center of you know, great commercial activity. You know, it says that there was corn and wine and oil were produced there and, and, and to great perfection. It's also rich in timber and mineral wealth. So the thing that we can presume about Joseph is that Joseph, who is spoken of in, 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 in chapter 4 at the very end, was a wealthy man right and so Barnabas alongside different people are selling off property so that they can provide for the need in their community and you know it says that Barnabas was a good guy you know in in Acts 11 24 it says he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith and a great number of people were brought to the Lord I think there's a uniqueness in the fact that you know Barnabas Joseph is mentioned that he comes and he sells a property and 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 this is purely just from my imagination that if this guy was a wealthy guy i probably this property that he sold was like massive right it was like it was such a bold thing that they were like hey my guy the son of encouragement they even gave they gave him a nickname they were like bruh this guy went and literally sold his stuff man like stuff that was like worth a lot this is again please work with me on this right and so of course, because of the Greek sacrifice that this guy has made, the apostles take a liking to him. They even give him a nickname, Barnabas, son of encouragement. Um, and, you know, he's a supportive guy. He's a guy who they say was a good man, full of the spirit, full of faith. And he was very, it says here, a guy who was sold out to the faith and he was very helpful to the church. He was very helpful to the church, right? And so, I imagine, right, 
here is uh, the, the, this, uh, the reason why Luke mentions this guy specifically. And literally immediately after, <laughs> immediately after that Luke talks about Joseph the Levite, right? And his contribution to the church, immediately after we see, but then there was a guy called Ananias, all right? So here we have this Joseph Levite, great guy, wealthy, has given, has probably sold his property, has done a lot for the church, and he's even given the nickname Barnabas, son of encouragement. And he's a guy who ends up spending, doing a lot of stuff for the church and was actually a partner with Paul in the ministry and, and the missionary work that they were doing to the Gentiles. So then he comes and Ananias and Sapphira, and I bet you anything that they were probably like, we ballers too. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? They have seen this guy, they're like, hey, my guy, even Joseph, the guy, they gave him a nickname, <laughs> son of encouragement, just because he sold some, some stuff. Even us, we can sell some stuff, bro. <laughs> so I bet everybody's just like, man, you know, even us, we can, we can you know, hmm? you know, everyone likes this guy because I bet you they like him because of, of, of his generosity, right? That's the reason. Not, really, not because he's full of the spirit or anything, but it's because the guy went and, and sold this, this, this massive property and he came. Dude. Yo, babe. <laughs> so this is what I imagine. And Ananias, he tells Asafira, babe, see even us, we can use our, our expensive plots. <laughs> oh, I really like this story. Anyway, um, so they're like, they scheme, scheme, but the guy, <laughs> they, listen, this is all my fiction. So I bet, but Ananias is like, hey, but guy, this thing is expensive. <laughs> this is a property. Watch how we keep some for ourselves, but we'll go tell these guys, man, that we sold this property. This is how much we got for it. And everyone will be so amazed. Wow, can't believe you guys sold that property to help the church. Yeah? This is what I'm inferring from this story because it's just like, well, how did, you know, Peter, when he comes in, it's like, it, it, it really speaks of the conspiracy. So he comes and he talks about, he, he tells his wife this whole thing and they keep some chums for themselves because they're like, brah, we can't give all these chums to the church, brah. We've got to keep some for ourselves, you know what I mean? But let's tell them that we, we gave everything because I want us, you know, we want, we want them to be like, hey, you guys, man, even they, they might give us a nickname, you know, like they did for Barnabas, right? The way they called him son of encouragement, maybe they'll, they'll also look at us and be like, wow, you guys are so amazing. Thank you so much. All that stuff. So he tells his wife and they do all these things. Cool, cool. Let's do this. They do it. So they proceed with their plan and with much pomp, they come and they present their gift to the apostles. And they're like, you know, I'm sure they, they, make, they made a whole hula baloo about it probably. I don't know. But they're like, eh, you know, you know, yeah, we sold this property, man. And we're just like waiting for guys. Wow. That's so amazing that you guys, what a, what a great, what a great couple and nice and Sapphira are. You know, they, 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 they sold this expensive property and gave the money to the church. But then, unfortunately, the Holy Spirit uh, tells Peter of their plot. And alas, this plot to deceive the church leads to both Ananias and Sapphira dying. And what Peter does is that he describes what they did as them not just lying to human beings, but to God. Now, the thing is, is that there are many things that I believe that we can take out from this story you know, like, you know, I read a lot about, you know, the dangers of hypocrisy and, 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 you know, lying and all those things. There are many things that we can take out from this story of Ananias and Sapphira. But there's one thing that I want us to focus in on that stands out to me regarding this story. For those of you who have watched the Kingdom series, one of the things that I mentioned in that series, and in fact, the very first episode, is that the Kingdom of God 
was the thing that Jesus talked about more than anything else. It was the number one topic that at any given time, if there was any time you'd bump into Jesus, you'd tell him, what do you want to talk about? He'd be like, the kingdom, right? But the thing is, is that his second most popular topic was about money or possessions, okay? This was his second most popular thing that he talked about. And one of the things that we see consistently throughout scripture is God's intolerance for hearts that are sold to possessions. If you look at the book of Joshua, in fact, I'd spoken about this in the story. Um, if you go back to the Joshua series, you'll be able to see this, where we talk about the story of a guy called Achan, who was lured into taking treasure that was forbidden. And God literally causes the whole entire Israel army to face defeat until they had destroyed the forbidden treasure. And on top of that, Achan and his family too were destroyed, were literally killed on account of them, of him being lured by treasure. I don't think that there's any coincidence that of all the 12 disciples chosen by Jesus, chosen by Jesus, Jesus literally spent a whole night praying for his disciples. That of all the 12 that were chosen, the guy that betrayed him was also the money guy. He was the guy that held the purse. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas was the guy that was the accountant. He was the guy who held the, the money purse. And it is no coincidence, in my opinion, that he was the one that fell off. That you begin to imagine, like, how is it that you could have spent all this time with Jesus, seeing all the things that he did, and yet still betray him? I do not think it is any coincidence that that guy was the money guy. And it says that he often dipped his hand into the purse. To enrich himself. Remember also he's the same guy who was so angry at the worship that Mary had where she broke this expensive jar of perfume to anoint Jesus' feet and he was like we could have sold this thing. But the thing it says is that they knew and Jesus knew that he was a thief. It is no coincidence that the guy who betrayed Jesus was the money guy. Twice in the book of Acts we see that the ultimate expression of love and unity being described in relation to how the believers dealt with possessions. If you remember where it says that God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and was distributed to anyone who had need. In Acts 2, it talks about the same thing, how they sold property and possessions to give to anyone that had need. That every single time when, they, when, when, when Luke is trying to describe the love, the unity within the church, he talks about how they handled possessions. And so, it's no coincidence to me that this, what we consider this extreme story of Ananias and Sapphira, where we see this grave judgment that they faced, it is no coincidence that it is in relation to how they handled their possessions. One of the things that we realize is that even when we look at the corruption in the church today, it is almost always either related to sexual immorality or money. True or false? 
Christ's emphasis on our relationship with money and possessions, the fact that it's this thing that he talked about after the, the most after the kingdom, reveals to us that there is no greater threat to the faith of a believer than the lure of possessions. The love of money will destroy your life. This is why Jesus talked about it so much. This thing is incredibly serious. Paul says it this way when writing to his mentee Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 and 10. He says, For the love of money is the, a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. A root. And Jesus, when teaching on money, describes money. He literally describes money as an alternative master to God. He does not describe Satan as an alternative master. In as much as he's the enemy of God, he describes money. Where he says in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is why this was the number two topic for Jesus, because according to Jesus, the love of money is a greater threat than even Satan himself. It is the most effective tool that Satan uses to drown the believer. This is why even when you see in the temptation of Jesus Christ in Matthew 4, that when you see that temptation, where one of the temptations, and in fact the temptation where, where, where Satan is like, worship me, the lure of that worship is in regards to possession. Now, the thing is this, the world that we live in, the love of money and possessions has been normalized. In fact, if you don't love money, you lack ambition. This is the pattern of this world. Our dominant global economic system is capitalism, which at its very core is from the pits of hell. It is an economic system that preys on the multitudes for the economic benefit of the few. It impoverishes people. It teaches, us, it teaches us that there is no greater success in life than to have a multitude of possessions. It teaches us to hoard possessions. In the U.S., they like to call it the American dream. <laughs> you know, your highest ambition is the, in, in life is the pursuit of great wealth. Everything we do in this life, in this world, is dominated by money. We have normalized covetousness. The definition of covetousness is inordinately or wrongly desirous of wealth or possessions. Greedy. Listen to that. Inordinately or wrongly desirous of wealth or possessions. We are constantly bombarded with stories of how people made their money and images of the many possessions that they have so that we can covet. We can convert these things and be like, oh, yeah, it's when you're a billionaire, you know, going to be rich, get a yacht. We're going to have all these, you know, Rick Ross. The other day, something I saw where it's like the guy has like, he had like 15, 15 cars, you know, all in one color, I, you know, antique. It's just like, yeah, 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 you know, got, you know, all these houses. <laughs> this one guy, <laughs> one person, yes, I don't know how many houses and cars. Like, it's just like, it's like many people. But anyway. Um, the truth is we have normalized covetousness in our society so much that we hardly even notice it. Not just in the world, but even in the church. We admire people with money regardless of their character. You know, you, in many churches, most times the people with the greatest influence are the people with the most money. 
We measure life success through the yardstick of money. We admire people solely for their ability to be monetarily successful. And for most of us, we set our goals based on money. The epicenter of our decision-making is guided by money. We compromise ourselves for money. Here in Kenya itself, we are filled with so many Christians, 80% Christians, yet we are one of the most corrupt countries in the world. We know of many, many churches that are simply money-making enterprises, fleecing the flock for financial gain, where our pursuit of God is in relation to our need for financial gain, where we come to God because we are looking for financial benefit. So it's even a dual thing where it's just like the guy who is the church leader is, is fleecing the flock and the flock is there because they're looking for the financial blessing that can come from above. The, manner, the, the, the blessings from above, the, the floodgates of heaven being opened unto them. One of the things that is so interesting is that, do you notice that even in Jesus' time, we never see people once come to him for a financial miracle? But today, if we were to ask most people in the church what they're in need of, it is a financial miracle. This need for financial miracles is a reflection of the society we live in, where so many have been impoverished because of the financial gain of a few. We speak of capitalism as though it came from God. It did not. It is from the pits of hell. Having said all this, having said all this, how then are we able to avoid the pitfall of the love of money, especially considering the world that we currently live in? The law of money and possessions is something that we will all have to battle consistently in our lives. This is why Jesus talked about it so much. Because this will be a battle that we will have to consistently face in our lives. So how do we overcome this? One thing is very clear from the scriptures. One thing is very clear. And even here in the book of Acts, that there is a fundamental connection between, between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money or possessions. There is a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money or possessions. When we look at the early church, one of the primary ways in which their commitment to Christ is demonstrated is through generosity. It says that God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that they gave up their possessions to help those in need. And so to answer this question of how I believe that we are able to overcome this, I believe that the answer for us lies in the second letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 15, Paul writes, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously, generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work, as it is written. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, so that... You can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. 
The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of this because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. This is what we can learn from this scripture, okay? I love this scripture. The key part for me is where he tells them, God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Then he goes on to tell them, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. What's the lesson here? First and foremost, there's two things. The first thing is this, that increase comes from God. Not only does increase come from God, every single thing comes from Him. Everything comes from Him. Notice how it says in Acts 4.32 that no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had. This was the beginning. This was the mindset that led to that generosity. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. The first thing that we need to acknowledge and deeply internalize is that what we have comes from God. It does not belong to you. Every resource on this earth belongs to him. Every resource. This is why when you die... (laughs) You cannot take anything with you because it doesn't belong to you, period. Psalm 24 and verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And so any time that we begin and we consider that that which we have is ours, then what we do is that we sow the destructive seed of possessions in our heart. When we begin to think to ourselves that the stuff that we have is ours. That's the beginning. And my friend, aren't we all guilty of this? I know I, mean, I, know, I, know I am. There are many times me I have overlooked this generosity because it's mine. It's mine. <laughs> but the beginning of this is that first and initial understanding that everything that we have, just like these believers in Acts, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. That's number one. But the second thing is this. Paul writes, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. I love how it says in NASB version, or even the NKJV, the New King James Version. And God is able to make all grace overflow to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. One of the things that you will find that is a big thing around the lure of possessions, greed, money, the love of money, at the core of it is that you will find that with most people is that they do not know their sufficiency. They do not know what they need. 
And so what happens is that when God blesses them, they hoard everything for themselves and then sparingly give. What Paul was teaching the Corinthians is that God is wanting to supply their needs. He's wanting to give them increase. But this increase is so that they have their needs met. One, their needs met. And then they can abound in every good work. So the purpose of the increase is not so that they can hoard it. The purpose of the increase was so that they could be generous on every occasion. Why? Because it is through their generosity that the love of Christ is revealed. But not only was their generosity a revelation of Christ's love, it also resulted in many thanksgivings to God. This is why he writes to them and he says, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. This is partly why you see such rapid growth in the church is because of the generosity that was happening in the church. And so the thing is this, what you realize from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament, God's plan for supplying the needs of his kingdom and the needs of others isn't through manna from heaven or miraculous provision. It is through his surpassing grace that he provides working through the generosity of his people. That was the thing. It was through his people that he intended to provide for the needs of his kingdom and the needs of others. Not manna from heaven or miraculous provision. The miraculous provision is you. <laughs> but instead for us, we would much rather pray for people's needs to be met than to actually reach into the surpassing grace God has given to us through what he has given us. There are not many of us that God can entrust with wealth and possessions. We would much rather hold it. Jesus says it this way in Luke 16, verse 10 to 12. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? What Paul teaches us, is that we need to know what we need because if we do not, we will hoard it. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me give you an example of what it is that I'm exactly saying, a very practical example of what I'm talking about in regards to knowing what you need. There's a friend of mine, and, and I'll, I'll never forget this, who taught me the most valuable lesson, and I only realized what she was teaching me later after I read 2 Corinthians, um, you know, many, probably about two years after she taught me this lesson. This friend of mine who, who, who I always used to admire because of how she was so good with, with handling money. Right? She was very good at handling money. She was, she was someone that you could entrust possessions to because she was very good at it. And one of the things that she taught me is that, so she used to have this, this Excel sheet that she showed me. And what she used to do in this Excel sheet is that she began to show me that she's like, okay, this, in this page, these is, this is are all the things that I need. And so she's like, in any given month, what I need is X amount, right? And in that Excel sheet, she's written down everything. I mean, talking about rent, uh, entertainment, food, shopping, uh, gym, uh, 
phone, everything, tithe, giving. Uh, I mean, she literally listed down every single thing, every single thing. And so because of this, let's assume that her needs were, just for the sake of this story, 100,000 100, shillings a month, right? And so she told me this incredible story where she was like, so because she knows what it is that she needs, right? There was a moment where she was working in government. She was working in a government institution. And of course, we know government institutions are famously known for corruption. And so what happened is because she was the, the financial officer at that government institution, someone came and offered her a bribe, right? And they came and offered her a bribe, very big bribe. And so for her, when, she, when this person came and offered her this bribe, she came and she just looked at this person and she's just like, looked at her budget and she's just like, but I don't need it, I don't need this money. Because what I need is this much. And it's just like, what you're offering me, it's like, what am I supposed to do with it? And so one of the things that she taught me and she told me through this is that she's like, Thimba, one of the things you need to realize is that if you do not know what you need, when God blesses you, you'll, you'll keep everything. But because for her, she's like, this is how she used to handle money. She'd be like, because my needs are 100,000, if God on, the, on this given month or this given moment gives me 1 million, she knows that that 900,000 is not hers. This was remarkable to me. Because this is literally what Paul is talking about. That God is able to make all grace abound towards you. Having sufficiency in all things. That you then are able to abound in every good work. That the increase that the Lord would give was not for the purpose of hoarding. It was for the purpose that we can be generous on every occasion. I'm going to share with you guys the Excel sheet. She gave me permission to share that with you. Because I truly believe that if we were literally able to look at the thing that Paul is saying to us, is that he's saying that unless we understand our sufficiency, then we will not be able to abound in every good work. Because when God brings the increase, we'll just go and hoard it. <laughs> we'll just go and hoard it. And one of the things that was so amazing is that even in her Excel sheet, she even had a part where it's like, these are my needs. Like if things, this is how much I need. But then if in, in an ideal world, this is how much I need, right? But the thing is for me is that she knew what she needed and she knew what she wanted. And if God supplied over and above that, she was like this, whatever that above is, doesn't belong to me. That there is for, for me to abound in every good work. And so she did not hoard possessions. She did not hold on to possessions and money and all these things. Right? I have permission to share this exercise with you guys and I will. In fact, I'll drop it in the... Actually, you know what? Get in touch with me on WhatsApp. Right? Get in touch. Use the link over there on WhatsApp. And then we'll send you the Excel sheet if, you, if, you, if you're interested in being able to use it. But fundamentally, the truth of the matter is this. That the whole point of this practice and the whole thing that Paul was teaching us and the thing that he's teaching us is this, is that first and foremost, is that I pray that this practice will help us first fully recognize, number one, that everything that we have belongs to God. First and foremost, that everything we have belongs to God. And that through this practice of generosity, we will not be one of those who sow sparingly, but we will be those who sow generously. And the thing to realize is that this thing is not just about money. 
This thing is not just about money, it's about money and possessions. So for some of us, we may not have money, but we have plenty of food that we can share with the watchman or others who are in need. So why hoard it until it goes bad and then you throw out the food? Or for some of us, we may not have money to give, but we have an abundance of clothes that we don't even wear, that we are hoarding, that we can give to those in need. One of the things a few weeks ago, if you remember, I spoke of, of the new thing that God wants to do. If you remember that I spoke about that, and I believe that part of that new thing is that he is seeking to enrich his people so that we can be witnesses of the love of Christ through our generosity. And that through our generosity, that many will come to the knowledge and acceptance of his saving grace. But the thing is this, are we prepared to receive this incredible grace that God wants to give to the church? That it says that he's able to make all grace abound towards us. That having sufficiency in all things, that we can abound in every good work. If you remember the people who are generous in the book of Acts, these were people who had an abundance of possessions. And what they did is that they were like, why are we holding on to this stuff? When we, God has allowed his grace to abound so much towards us that we're able to get rid of these possessions and instead be generous that to the extent that there were no, need, there were no needy persons within the church, we have normalized our hoarding. We have normalized this whole manic acquisition of possession. For what? What we are being taught here is that the thing is that the lure of possessions is a great danger for us. And the only way to remedy that is for us to go to the word and to execute and do the thing that God says to us in his word that he's able to make all grace abound towards us, that having sufficiency in all things, we can abound in every good work. Amen. Amen. Hey guys, thank you so much for watching. Listen, if this message blessed you, please be sure to share with someone whom you love. Share with a friend, a colleague, anyone. And then also, listen, support us. Support this ministry so that we can be able to make more dope content and be able to spread this message of the kingdom to as many people as possible. And then, make sure that you subscribe. Sawa, subscribe. Subscribe, wherever the button, subscribe, subscribe. God bless you guys.